Well, I'm thankful that Sunday to Sunday, usually, we're working our way through books of the Bible, and we know what the next passage is going to be, and therefore what the next topic or topics are going to be. Uh, I was asked recently this week, how do you think of what to say? Not, no one who goes to this church asked me this. Um, this person assumed that I do what her priest does and come up with commentary based on the news or based on new thoughts he had. And I said, oh, it's easy. We just do the next passage. We go through books of the Bible and we, and we look at what it says and we talk about that. We talk about what the Bible says. I don't have any original thoughts. Uh, <laughs> But I did think this week, I'm thankful for our Lord's Supper services where uh, there's no plan. We're not usually working through a book of the Bible or a, a small series month to month, but uh, something that's coming out of the overflow of my thought, a passage that's been on my mind, uh, winds up here. Now, four and a half years ago, I preached a sermon for our Missions Emphasis Week on a passage at the end of 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy 4, 9 to 22. And those of you who are familiar with your Bibles will know that at the end of letters in the New Testament, there's often this familiar theme or themes. They, they, they sort of bundle together a lot of things. Greet so-and-so. I hope to see you soon. Here are some practical instructions for you, like get the money ready because I'm coming. And here are a couple of brief updates about so-and-so and so-and-so. Well, 2 Timothy 4, 9 to 22 is the longest of those kind of endings among the New Testament letters. It's the longest, if not the longest winded, you could say, because it's a curious section of the Bible. It's a head scratcher at first read. It contains brief mention of 18 people and eight different places or cities. It's not the kind of passage that preachers go out of their way to preach, let alone come back to within five years. And that's exactly my plan tonight. So turn with me, if you would, to 2 Timothy 4, a passage that has been on my mind a lot in recent days, in the last few years. It has come to a greater light in my understanding and I think our experience as a church since I last brought it before you. Just, just curious, how many of you were here longer than four and a half years ago? Back four and a half years ago, you were here, okay? And how many of you are new as of four and a half years ago? Okay, that looks like one-fourth or three, one-fourth to three-fourths maybe, something like that. Well... Those three-fourths who were here four and a half years ago will not remember this sermon. <laughs> but that's not why I'm preaching it to you tonight, just simply because you won't remember it anyway. I'm not conveniently recycling my old material. Uh, again, this is a passage who, that has come to my mind a lot in the last few years and I think rings truer in the experience of our church than it did, say, five years ago. There are, many there are many people and places in this passage. And they're not passages, they're not people or places that we're familiar with, none of whom we've met, no places probably that most of us have been to, but they're not irrelevant. 
They reveal priorities, gospel priorities. And so God's people all through the ages up till today can glean some timeless principles or priorities that are weaved between these seemingly random, seemingly specific to those people kind of updates and travel plans. We could call this people, places, and priorities. Or if you like a longer title, we could call this the sweetness and sorrow of comings and goings for the gospel. So here it is, 2 Timothy 4, starting in verse 9 to the end. Paul writes at the end of his life and at the end of this letter to Timothy, he says, Do your best to come to me soon, for Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. Tychicus I have sent to Ephesus. When you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas, also the books, and above all the parchments. Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Be aware of him yourself, for he strongly opposed our message. At my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet Prisca and Aquila in the household of Onesiphorus. Erastus remained at Corinth, and I left Trophimus, who was ill, at Miletus. Do your best to come to me before winter. Eubulus sends greetings to you as do Pudens and Linus and Claudia and all the brothers. The Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you. As I said already, 2 Timothy 4 is Paul's last word found in the Bible. It's written from a Roman prison in the shadow of his looming execution. And just look at a couple verses before we started reading. Look at verse 6 and 7 where Paul says, I am already being poured out as a drink offering and the time of my departure has come. I fought the good fight. I've finished the race and I've kept the faith. Now Paul had wondered before whether death was close for him. See Philippians 1 if you want an example of that. But this is different. Now death is certain and imminent. Paul's been imprisoned before, but not like this. In the days of Philippians, when he wrote that letter, he was under house arrest in Rome. It was rather convenient, not too difficult. But here, now, he is in a rough, harsh, cold, damp, subterranean dungeon. On the screens here is a, a bit of Rembrandt's painting. I think it's called St. Paul in Prison. Uh, it's bigger than this, but there's a, a glimpse of Rembrandt's impression of this scene where Paul writes these final words to Timothy. You can see a man 
writing. I don't know if you can notice, but one shoe is off and one shoe is on. This is a guy who, uh, are things clear for him? Or are things getting cloudy for him? It's not quite clear which one it is. It's Paul at the end of his life, for better or for worse. I love this painting. I have it in my study. Now, maybe none of us in this room will ever go out like Paul did, dying a martyr's death. Maybe none of us will ever stand trial or or go to prison for our faith. And certainly none of us are apostles. None of us are commanding ministries and ministers to come and to go and giving assignments like the Apostle Paul is giving in 2 Timothy 4. But, but I think there are some things in this passage that should seem familiar to us at Desert Springs because in recent days we've been a church that's familiar with transitions, as we said on Sunday, with comings and goings. We're, we're a church that purposefully sends off to North Africa, uh, to seminary for some, to uh, Guatemala, to downtown Albuquerque, or even to Greenville, South Carolina. Uh, And therefore, we're a church that raises up and brings in. So here are five, no, four reminders or encouragements that stretch from Paul's pen in a Roman prison almost 2,000 years ago to us right here tonight. The first lesson for us here is the beauty of gospel friendships. There's a beauty of gospel friendships that this passage wonderfully highlights for us, and it may be the central thing about these seemingly random verses. Notice the bookends to our passage. Verse 9 and verse 21 show Paul's concern for and his call for Timothy to come to him. Verse 9, do your best to come to me soon. Verse 21, now with heightened urgency, more specificity, do your best to come to me before winter. And in the middle, verse 13, when you come, Paul wants Timothy to come. Because Paul and Timothy go way back. Timothy began traveling with Paul likely in his late teen years. After a decade of hands-on ministry and discipleship under the Apostle Paul, apart from a couple of short or shorter errands, ministry errands that Paul would send Timothy on, after a decade or so, there's a pretty significant goodbye. Paul leaves Timothy in Ephesus. It's back in 1 Timothy 1. In 1 Timothy 1, I urged you to stay in Ephesus to put things in order there. Now, maybe two to three years after that, Paul writes, look at chapter 1 of our book, 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy 1, verse 3. Do you feel the emotion here? I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day, as I remember your tears, likely goodbye tears, I long to see you. As Paul could tell the Corinthians, Timothy was Paul's beloved and faithful child in the Lord. And so at the end of Paul's life, Paul wants Timothy close by. Come soon, come before winter. 
Why? Because of the need for and the beauty of gospel friendships. But it wasn't just Timothy. This isn't just a story of of best friends. Paul loved and longed for other people as well. Timothy was special, yes, but Paul had many gospel partners or traveling companions or helpers in various capacities. It wasn't just individuals, but even churches. So he could say to the Philippians, you are my brothers whom I love and long for my joy and crown. He could say to the Thessalonians, I'm being affectionately desirous of you. And then there are all other kinds of people mentioned in our passage besides Timothy that at one point had an intimate connection and a backstory with the Apostle Paul. Like Luke, in verse 11, we're just given this short sentence Luke alone is with me. Praise God for Luke who wrote our book that we're studying on Sunday morning, Acts. He was with Paul for so much of it. Paul could say, that beloved physician, as if he had been the beneficial, experiential person who Luke worked on, right? Luke alone is with me. Praise God for Luke. Dear Luke. Paul says in verse 19 of our passage, Greet Prisca and Aquila, this couple, Aprilla, uh, Aquila and Prisca, or Priscilla. They only get a simple greeting here in our passage, but there's some big history here. They started traveling with Paul back in Acts 18 after their conversion. They supported Paul probably as much or more than any family ever did. And Paul lived with them for over a year. Greet Prisca and Aquila, and the household of Anesiphorus, Paul says in verse 19. Why him? Well, because of chapter 1 of this same letter. Listen to this, chapter 1, verse 16, regarding Onesiphorus, the guy with the funny name. He often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. When he arrived in Rome, he searched for me in earnest and found me. You know all the service he rendered at Ephesus. You hear these warm, backstory-filled, experiential relationships delivered to us in simple greetings. Now, you don't have to be an apostle or a missionary or a pastor to experience some of these rich blessings that come from gospel-rooted relationships. Every Christian should know something of the benefits and the richness of these gospel-rich relationships. Not all seasons of life will be equally relationally rich. We'll come to that in just a bit. That's in our passage too. Sometimes it'll be harder to go deep or to make progress in relationships with people. I can't guarantee that all of your bestie friendship dreams will get fulfilled here at Desert Springs Church. But I can give you some principles for you to consider towards getting deeper in gospel-centered relationships. Number one, 
True and deep gospel friendships like this, they take time. So put in the time and be patient. They take time. So put in the time and be patient. Number two, true and deep gospel friendships grow out of sacrifice and service and ministering alongside one another and bearing each other's burdens and studying the Bible together and praying together and being accountable to one another. They, they grow out of heartache and, and need and vulnerability. Number three, true and deep gospel friendships happen when people, to quote Philippians 2, look not at their own needs, but the needs of others. When they consider others more important than themselves. When Christ is at the center and when love is the motivation and time and sacrifice and prayer and Bible are ingredients, what a beautiful thing God produces, which we simply call Christian friendship or fellowship. Fellowship. It is a fellowship that no hobbit has ever known. It's better than that. It's as good as that, as rich as that, as deep as that, as warm as that, as sacrificial as that, but better. And when you get a good taste of fellowship like that, then saying goodbye is hard, missing people is normal. And longing for them and even calling on them to get back home or get together one more time. It's a good thing. So here, at the end of Paul's life, it's a dying man's wish. Do your best to come to me soon. Secondly, our passage teaches us the importance of gospel strategy. There's the beauty of gospel friendships, but there is also the importance for gospel strategy. Now, throughout this, as I give you the outline, we'll sort of get a, a little bit ahead of ourselves, and, and then we'll be able to talk about the point explicitly. So I've already implied, I think, the passage certainly has, that in the beauty of gospel friendships, there inevitably are intentional breaks in the friendship or seasonal separations in a sense, at least due to proximity for the sake of gospel strategy. So here it is explicitly now, the importance of gospel strategy. Isn't that why Paul left Timothy in Ephesus? Gospel strategy. Timothy was needed in Ephesus more than he was needed at Paul's side. The question was not Paul's comfort or preference or feelings, but strategy for the kingdom. Why did Paul leave Ephesus back in Acts 20? After three plus years of being there and ministering in Ephesus, he left not because he was sick of Ephesus Christians and figured he'd go get some new ones someplace else, anywhere else. No, here's his goodbye in Acts 20 after he had a quiet word with the Ephesian elders he knelt down and prayed with them all, and there was such weeping on the part of them all. They embraced Paul and kissed him. 
being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken that they wouldn't see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. Paul didn't leave Ephesus because he wanted to. And how about the movements of people to places in our passage of 2 Timothy 4? Look at verse 10. Crescens has gone to Galatia. That's not him just going astray. That's an assignment. Titus, he used to be down in Crete. Now he's all the way up in Dalmatia. Maybe he'll get a dog while he's there. (laughs) Verse 12, Tychicus, I've sent to Ephesus. He's calling Timothy from Ephesus to Rome, and he's putting Tychicus to Ephesus in Timothy's place. Verse 20, Erastus remained at Corinth. You always need a dude at Corinth. They need watching. you got to keep a guy at Corinth. So Erastus stayed there. As for Trophimus, I left him at Miletus because he was too ill to go on. So Paul, just like leaving the familiarity of Aquila and Prisca, just like moving on from Onesiphorus, what is it? Onesiphorus's uberly warm hospitality. Why would he do it? Well, it's for the kingdom. Some people, whether in the first century or today, get saved in their hometown become a part of a church in their hometown and get to stay in their hometown. There's nothing wrong with that if that is where you are best used and where you are most needed. But not everyone can stay home. Ryan Kelly didn't. Ron Giese didn't. Drew Hodge didn't. Trent Hunter didn't. Those who formed Christ Church out of Desert Springs Church. They stayed in Albuquerque. They likely still have the same physical mailing address at home, but they left us, and they did that for the kingdom. Not everyone can stay home. Sometimes we we must let goods and kindred go this mortal life also. Personally, I'd like to keep all things always the same. I'm getting old enough now. There's enough gray in my beard that I can speak of my, my peeps, my, my ministry youngins. I wish they were all still here. But our friendships are bigger than ourselves. And man, Paul understood this better than anyone except Jesus. For decades, he's been willing to go and to go and to go. He's been willing to leave precious people behind. He's been willing time and again to send off his best and brightest. In fact, if you put these places found in 2 Timothy 4 on a map, it's all spread out. These cities are all metropolises. They're all, except for one, they're coastal cities around the Mediterranean Sea. Paul here is like a military general putting his best men in key spots for the advance of the gospel. It's strategery, to quote George W. Bush. 
He's patching holes. He's shoring up. By the way, can I suggest that this somewhat relates to the multiplication of community groups within our church. It's not just about those who leave our church. It also relates to the multiplication of community groups in our church. I've heard people in our church bemoan having to split their community group. Brothers and sisters, can we not use that word split? Let's not use the word our community group is going to divide. Instead, multiplication sounds like a much better thing to say here, right? We want our churches, we want our community groups to multiply. We want them to grow and to duplicate. And we want ourselves here in community groups within our midst to multiply. We all know that it takes a a hit on our warmth and familiarity and comfortability when we need to multiply from one group to two groups. But the goal is not relationships as an end in themselves. These are gospel relationships with gospel strategy. So whether we're talking about our financial giving to the mission of the church or our sending or our going or community groups multiplying, realize we got to keep going. we got to keep going until the work is done or the Lord takes us home. And what a model Paul is for us. Here he is in his final months and he is relentless. He won't take his foot off the gospel ministry pedal. Calling Timothy in from Ephesus to himself was not just for companionship, but it was also for ministry. You see in verse 11, there he says, get Mark and bring him with you for he is very useful for me and for ministry. That's part of why Timothy needs to get to Rome. Get Mark, who's valuable for ministry, and get him here with you. Verse 13, see that? And when you come, Timothy, bring my coat, also the books, and above all the parchments. Now, we can't know for sure what was on these books and parchments. You may have heard before that this was Paul's Bible or parts of Paul's Bible. Maybe you've heard it's Paul's Bible in his personal journal. That's what every Christian should have, right? A Bible and a journal. Well, we don't know for sure, but I suspect that what's going on here in this passage is not just for Paul's personal, private, devotional, quiet times. I think it's broader than that. I suspect that the books and the parchments, whatever is on them, has something to do with Mark. These are in close proximity to each other here. Why else would Mark be needed? And yes, I know, Paul and Mark, you may know, they had a falling out back in Acts 15. And so partly what we're seeing in 2 Timothy 4 is something like a, a reconciliation. If it hadn't happened before, we don't know. Maybe that is what's going on here. But, but Paul doesn't say, hey, Timothy, bring Mark to me because we've got some making up to do. 
He says, bring Mark to me, for he is very useful to me for ministry. What ministry? What ministry are they going to be doing in a Roman prison? Luke is there. Mark is coming with Timothy, meeting up with Paul in Rome for some kind of ministry. What kind of ministry can you do there? Well, we don't know. But maybe Paul wanted something like to add more to the book of Acts, which apparently that didn't happen or didn't survive or something. But maybe he wanted Luke and Mark to make sure that they both agreed together with each other's accounts of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. The mid-60s, all this is happening. Mark's writing, Luke's writing, probably before 2 Timothy 4. But now, here Paul's writing and saying, let's, let's all get together. Now, I don't know exactly what's happening here, but I do know that Paul is peddled to the metal in his dying days. There's more ministry to be done he isn't giving up. He's not coasting. So Timothy, get here. Yes, because I miss you. But get here with Mark in the papers and the books. Because ministry. Ministry. More ministries needed. And don't forget my coat on the way. Because apparently he's cold or is going to be. Winter is coming. And we have work to do. So now thirdly, there's the reality of gospel suffering, the beauty of gospel friendships, the importance of gospel strategy, and then there's the reality of gospel suffering. Paul wrote from a cold jail without a coat. He is a man like his Lord, acquainted with suffering. We've already seen the kind of suffering that comes from the loss of gospel companions because of gospel strategy, right? Crescens and Titus and Tychicus and Erastus and Trophimus, these were all Paul's boys, and they're all someplace else for the sake of the gospel. And that, and that hurts. Hopefully you know that. We haven't yet talked about the suffering and pain, though, that comes from desertion, like that of Demas. In verse 10, Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Now, we don't know exactly what this desertion means. Did it just mean geography? Did it just mean giving up on the mission? Or did Demas also give up on Jesus? Did Demas prove that his faith wasn't genuine because despite his famous service alongside Paul many times in the Bible, sometimes functioning as Paul's number two in place of Timothy, he deserted. He left it. It would seem that it wasn't just deserting Paul because he was tired or because he was sick or because Thessalonica sounded better, but it sounds more spiritually serious than that. He's in love with this present world. And 1 John 2 tells us not to love the world or the things in this world because if any man loves the world like that, the love of the Father is not in him. Jesus taught his disciples that of the four soils, two of them give up 
They, they look promising at first. But one sees persecution and flees, gives up. Another one is drawn away by the riches of this world and proves it's not real. So regardless of whether this is Demas just quitting, heading home, giving up on the mission because it's hard, or giving up on Jesus and his confession of Jesus altogether, it breaks Paul's heart, it stings. And there's also the direct opposition to Paul and the gospel in this character, Alexander. Verse 14, Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself, for he strongly opposed our message. Who knows exactly what this looked like? But a guy named Alexander the coppersmith sounds pretty menacing to me just by, that, just by the name. <laughs> Great harm. He strongly opposed our message. Beware. There's also the suffering that Paul faced on account of just abandonment. Friends not being there. At verse 16, he says, At my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. Can you imagine this? Here's Paul's defense. It's a public defense. Who's here to defend this man? Crickets. This is the Apostle Paul. No one? No one said anything? Just like his Lord, the Apostle Paul, had no one to stand with him at his defense. Or as he says back in chapter 1 of this book, all who are in Asia have turned away from me. Now you may never be on trial for believing in or proclaiming Jesus. You may never have a coppersmith on your trail trying to do you harm. But of various kinds and forms and in different seasons of our lives, we will have similar experiences as these. And they, they hurt. I'm sure if you've been a Christian for very long, you've had a friend who said he was a Christian and then just give up altogether. Just cash in and walk away. And no amount of pleading or reasoning changes his mind or her mind. I'm sure if you've been a Christian for very long, you have friends who've slowly stopped doing the hard things. And by hard things, I mean going to church. So I mean hard as a joke, basically, right? Give up reading the Bible. Give up meeting with the saints. It's painful to see that. It's painful to see someone walk away from brothers and sisters whom they have years of history with without any explanation, without any concern or care. Maybe you've been misrepresented by another Christian or a so-called Christian. 
Or maybe you sometimes just feel alone. Maybe you feel like no one stands with you right now. Well, Christians can expect suffering. All who live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. In this world, you will have tribulation, Jesus said. You might feel alone right now. Well, so far, let's just put yourself in the, in the company of Jesus and Paul and find some comfort. Even if your loneliness is more perceived than real. Sometimes we perceive ourselves to be more alone in this world or in this church than we are. And I think that's actually happening in our passage. I think the model Apostle Paul is actually doing that very same thing here. I think he's exaggerating a bit. Dare I say it? Because in verse 11, look at that. Luke alone is with me. That's a man who feels very alone. Only Luke is here. Get here soon. Hurry up. Bring Mark. I know we didn't get along for a while, but bring him anyway because only Luke is here. Compare that with verse 21. Now, Eubula sends greetings to you, as do Pudens and Linus and Claudia and all the brothers. He has so many with them, he stopped naming them and just said, and all the brothers. Luke alone is with me. Uh, these five or six people and the rest, however many, they also say hi. Can you relate? Ever been there? Are you suspicious enough about your own sense of loneliness to wonder whether you're not as alone as you think you are? Well, the Apostle Paul apparently did. Don't be surprised when you feel lonely and don't think you're really alone no matter how bad it is. Because of number four, the source of gospel strength. The source of gospel strength, not ultimately is it people. It is people. Let me clarify, we're going to talk about Jesus as the source of gospel strength, and he is not the only source of gospel strength in this world. Look around this room. I'm comforted by your presence, and I'm strengthened by your prayers. People do matter. People do help. But Christ's strengthening is utterly unparalleled, and it alone is essential. So Paul can say, verse 16, all deserted me, Verse 17, but the Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. Christ's source of strength, Christ as our source of strength, is a source that is utterly unparalleled and, and alone is essential. No one can do for us what only Christ can do. Not all the people, not all the friends, not the biggest and most friendly church in all the world can do what Christ can do for you. Even when no one is with us, and even when it feels like no one is with us, the Lord stands by our side. He's not just with us, but he strengthens us. He stood by my side and he strengthened me. 
Not just for our comfort, but also for ministry. He stood by my side and strengthened me so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed. And he protects us. I was rescued from the lion's mouth, Paul says, echoing the prophet Daniel. And the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed, he says in verse 18, and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. Now here's Paul at the end of his life. Here's Paul who says, I'm about to be poured out as a drink offering. The race is done. It's finished. They're going to kill me. And he says, the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed. What? How will the Lord rescue from every evil deed if you think you're about to be executed, Paul? Well, he will bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. Isn't that funny? Paul is essentially saying that God's final rescue is his home going. That's how the Lord will bring him safely into his heavenly kingdom when his life is poured out as a drink offering when they lop his head off with a sword. To live is Christ and to die is gain. Romans 8, what can they do to us, right? Who can separate us from the love of Christ, which is in Christ Jesus? In all these things, in distress, in death, in famine, in sword, in all these things, we are more than conquerors, Paul says. So this is why we can let goods and kindred go this mortal life also. This is why we can give and go. This is why we can send. This is why we can say goodbye. As Jim Elliot said, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. So to him be the glory forever and ever. Still today, we see and need to encourage and promote and practice the beauty of gospel friendships, the importance of gospel strategy. We need to realize the necessity even of gospel suffering and know the source of our gospel strength. And if I might offer a, a bonus point, it's because of the surety of gospel success. Here's Paul at the end of his life. It looks like he hasn't been very successful. But here we are, almost 2,000 years later on the other side of the world, and we are among Millions, I don't know, of Christians in this world? And how many on the rolls of heaven? How many among the angels even now? There's surety to the gospel's success despite what it feels like, despite what we want, and despite even at times what it looks like. We know all this to be true because Jesus died in our place and was raised on the third day and he reigns forevermore and this is his work. 
He sustained the Apostle Paul and spoke through him. He continues to build his church and use little old us, you and me. How good of him to give us gospel friendships, to point us to gospel strategy, to strengthen us in our gospel suffering, and to give us the confidence of gospel success, not in our own doing, but in his.